0: All right, it's time for us to talk about the Russia-Ukraine war. On March 8th of this year, in a televised message, Putin told Russians there will be no draft of reservists. Fast forward to today, there is partial mobilization. Of course, we saw those sold-out flights from Russia. There's been nuclear saber rattling, and the Kremlin is calling up 300,000 reservists. And what is their first military draft since the Second World War? All of this for what it's still calling a special military operation. Let's not forget they're holding sham referendums and dishing out more threats of nuclear warfare. My guest is Melinda Herring. She's the deputy director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Hello, Melinda.
1: Hi, good morning, Raji. Great to be with you.
0: Oh, thanks so much for being here. So, Melinda, you heard my intro there. It just is Putin becoming desperate now?
1: So Putin does not have a good hand. We are seven months in. February 24th is the date that your uh, listeners will remember when Russia decided to go into Ukraine once again and try to take over the country in a matter of days. And it failed. That was phase one, trying to take the city of Kiev and push out Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. So they retreated from Kiev. They went to eastern Ukraine. And they probably came out on top there, but it's sort of a stalemate. And then they moved to phase three of the war, and the Ukrainians are pushing back in a counteroffensive and trying to retake the south and the east of Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are doing really, really well. So Putin's, Putin's out of really good options at this point, and he's really stuck his neck out. I didn't think he was going to mobilize because Putin is someone who likes stability. Uh, And he likes order. And by doing this partial mobilization, which is a misnomer, we should talk about that in a minute. But by doing this, he's unleashing forces in society that he can't control. Why is
0: partial mobilization a misnomer?
1: So on Wednesday, Putin called it partial mobilization. But if you look at the actual documents, the word partial is not there. The document is very expansive. And there's rumors that it's not 300,000, that he may be calling up to 1.2 million is some of the rumors in the Russian papers.
0: Yeah, it would seem that way. There's this sudden ramping of tactics that seems almost chaotic. And in an article for the Atlantic Council, you write that partial mobilization wouldn't make that much of a difference anyway, because soldiers would have to undergo extensive training first. And then the BBC has reported that the Kremlin is releasing prisoners from Russian jail to fight in the war. They're pulling people straight from their work site and putting them on buses and sending them off to war. People who have never fought before have zero training. If this kind of uh, forced uh, soldering up of them is, is futile, then why is Putin bothering?
1: Putin is fully committed to what he started on February 24th, and it goes back beyond February 24th. There's a wonderful article that I would recommend uh, on the Carnegie Endowment's website. It's called Putin's Unfinished Business, and it's by my friend Andrew Weiss. And what he says, basically, is that Putin wants to go down in history as a great Russian leader. So he's trying to regather what he sees as historic Russian territory. He thinks Ukraine belongs to him, and he wants to destroy Ukraine. That's what this is fundamentally about, He wants to rewrite the rules of the the European security architecture. That's fancy Washington language. for He wants to be in charge of how uh, peace and war are, are, are fought in Europe. And he wants to destroy NATO's unity. We saw that he's failed on that. And he would love to humiliate the West. Those are his four goals. That's what he set out to do in February. And even though he's not winning right now, he's fully committed to those goals, and he's changing his tactics. But uh, like, like we've talked about, he's, he's not doing very well and he feels very desperate.
0: As you know, Melinda, there have also been these major protests across Russia. More than 700 people were arrested in protests against a military <clears throat> call-up these are people who are refusing to fight. And then people will go to jail as a result. Uh, others are desperately trying to flee. Uh, Finland, we've learned, has since closed their borders. And mm-hmm. then Re- Reuters, the news agency, is reporting that these lineups to get into Finland are just filled with people who don't know what to do now. Where does the partial mobilization leave, do you think, the, the ordinary population of Russia?
1: Okay, R- Reggie, it's we got to step back. It's it's not they're not major protests. Russia has 140 million people, right? And I think it's helpful to look at Belarus in 2020 when 10% of Belarusians came out to the street, and there was no change. Russians know this, and there was a harsh, harsh crackdown. Russians know this, and they're already being punished for coming out. There's this is a society where if you stick your neck out, you will be trampled. Uh, so. When Putin announced earlier this year that he was going into Ukraine, an estimated 300,000 to 3.8 million left. That was in February, March. That was earlier this year. These people on average were 32 years old and they had higher education and they moved to Turkey, Georgia and Armenia. Some of them have come back. This new group of people that are getting out, we don't have good numbers. You know, we see pictures, but this is not going to lead to some kind of big societal change. I think we need to stop engaging in magical thinking. That's not how Russia is going to change. People are desperate uh, to get out because the word is out. They know that fighting in Ukraine is intense, and they don't have the, the sufficient training, as you described, to be fighting. And they don't see the point of it. Something really interesting happened this last week on Russian state TV. People are starting to openly criticize the quote-unquote special military operation for, for uh, the first time in, in many months. So the word is out, even though Russian television is state-controlled. People don't want to die in Ukraine, and they don't understand uh, why Vladimir Putin is so insistent on this war. It doesn't make sense to them.
0: Melinda, I just want to talk a bit closer about something that you just mentioned there. Do you think, then, that the protests are being exaggerated
1: no, I don't think they're being exaggerated. So I, I, I'm not trying to criticize Western media. We have a really, Russia's a black box right now, and we should be completely open about what we do know and what we don't know. So I've had all these sort of speculative discussions. You know, we're engaging in criminology once again, because we simply don't have very much information. And Putin is acting, I think he's, he's acting in a more emotional, unhinged way than he has in the past. So it's very hard to predict his behavior. But on on the, the mobilization versus the referenda and the nuclear threats, so everyone is focused on mobilization. And my argument there is don't focus on mobilization. Focus on the referenda and the annexation. What's happening over the weekend is that Russian soldiers and Russian officials are going door to door in four big provinces of Ukraine, and they're demanding that Ukrainian citizens vote for annexation, that their sovereign territory become part of Russia. They don't want to do it, but they're being forced to vote. What that means, Raji, is that these four provinces are going to come under Moscow's nuclear umbrella. This means Vladimir Putin is saying, these are mine. If Ukraine tries to retake this territory, I, 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 it's, it's bad news. He, he's, he's saying, I will protect these territories with my with my nuclear umbrella. And he's, he's betting that the West isn't going to. And he's right. That's why the situation is getting really scary.
0: And some of your colleagues have written about the West's response. What do you think needs to happen from the international powers at this point?
1: So I'm going to quote the great Lithuanian foreign minister, Landsbergis. He says, don't blink. So we need to remain firm and committed to Ukraine and send them all the weapons that they need. The U.S. has done a great job and the Canadians are doing a good job uh, and the Brits are doing a good job, but we have not sent the long-range missiles that the Ukrainians are asking for. And, and the White House is afraid uh, of, of World War III and nuclear escalation. You know, a lot, of this, a lot of analysts think that Putin is just talking a big game and he's bluffing. And I think that's likely right, uh, but there is a chance that he's not. We need to keep sending these, these weapons, though, to get the war over as soon as possible. And they're asking for more high Mars as well. These are the long-range systems, uh, missiles that the United States has sent over. We've sent over about 18 uh, and the people I talk to on the ground say the Ukrainians need another 60 to be able to end this war. There's a, there's a long list of equipment that the Ukrainians have asked for. And the U.S. has been uh, too late uh, to the game where it, it takes us about three weeks longer than it should. We sit around and debate and pretend this is law school uh, when this is a real war. Uh, neither side, uh, neither the Ukrainian side nor Moscow show any signs of sitting down at the negotiating table. So I, I know that this is sort of a perverse way to say it. But if you want peace, you have to you have to enable the ukrainians to win on the battlefield as soon as possible and you do that by giving them all of the military equipment and the intelligence support that they need now
0: okay melinda we'll have to leave it there thank you so much for your time today
1: my pleasure thank you bye bye